I live in Europe, and it's incredibly easy to travel here. By bus, train or plane, I can be in any other European country in a matter of hours, for pretty cheap. But while I'm in other countries, I still want to check my emails, check my YouTube analytics and all that fun stuff. Well, by using Surfshark VPN, I changed my location to France using one of their 3200 plus servers, and I'm no longer annoyed by thousands of emails from Google freaking out saying, Oh my god, there's a computer in Spain trying to hack you! There isn't Google. It's me. And thanks to Surfshark, I'm no longer bothered by these annoying messages. Use the link in the description or episode notes to get Surfshark VPN today for as little as $2.30 per month on a two-year plan, and log into all your accounts anywhere with zero hassle and no annoying emails. We've all gone to websites only to be presented with a pop-up asking if we'll accept the cookies. Well, did you know that by accepting those cookies, you're allowing that website to collect data on you? These websites will then sell your information to data brokers, who will then create a digital profile of you, which can be used by banks, advertisers, and scammers against you. Well, thanks to Incogni, you no longer need to worry about your data being stolen and sold. Incogni is a tool that will remove your data from these companies for you. All you need to do is sign up, allow Incogni to work for you, and they will contact data brokers on your behalf and guarantee that your digital ID is removed from the internet. Use the link in the description and episode notes and get Incogni today for $6.49 per month on a year plan and protect your data and digital ID. Hello, and welcome to The Essential Read. My name is Isaac, and my goal is to bring you a bunch of classic audiobooks in an easy and accessible way. Let's get started. The Scarlet Letter by Nathaniel Hawthorne Chapter 20 The Minister in a Maze As the minister departed, in advance of Hester Prynne and Little Pearl, he threw a backward glance half expecting that he should discover only some faintly traced features or outlines of the mother and child slowly fading into the twilight of the woods. So great a vicissitude in his life could not all at once be received as real. But there was Hester, clad in her grey robe, still standing beside the tree trunk, which some blast had overthrown a long antiquity ago, and which time had ever since been covering with moss, so that these two fated ones, with earth's heaviest burden on them, might sit there together and find a single hour's rest and solace. And there was Pearl, too, lightly dancing from the margin of the brook, now that the intrusive third person had gone, and taking her old place by her mother's side. So the minister had not fallen asleep, and dreamed. In order to free his mind from this indistinctness and duplicity of impression which vexed it with a strange disquietude, he recalled and more thoroughly defined the plans which Hester and himself had sketched for their departure. It had been determined between them that the old world, with its crowds and cities, offered them a more eligible shelter and concealment than the wilds of New England or all America, with its alternatives of Indian wigmen or of the few settlements of Europeans scattered thinly across the sea border. Not to speak of the clergyman's health, so inadequate to sustain the hardships of a forest life, his native gifts, his culture, his entire development would secure him a home only in the midst of civilization and refinement. The higher the state, the more delicately adapted to it the man. In furtherance of this choice, it so happened that a ship lay in the harbour, one of those questionable cruisers frequent at that day, which, without being absolutely outlaws of the deep, yet roamed over its surface with the remarkable irresponsibility of character. 
This vessel had recently arrived from the Spanish main, and within three days' time would sail for Bristol. Hester Prynne, whose vacation as a self-enlisted sister of charity had brought her acquainted with the captain and crew, could take upon herself to secure the passage of two individuals and a child with all the secrecy which circumstances rendered more than desirable. The minister had inquired of Hester, with no little interest, the precise time at which the vessel might be expected to depart. It would probably be on the fourth day from the present. That is most fortunate, he had then said to himself. Now, why the Reverend Mr. Dimmesdale considered it to be very fortunate, we hesitate to reveal. Nevertheless, to hold nothing back from the reader, it was because, on the third day from the present, he was to preach the election sermon. And, as such an occasion formed an honourable epoch in the life of a New England clergyman, he could not have chanced upon a more suitable mode and time of terminating his professional career. At least they shall say of me, thought this exemplary man, that I leave no public duty underperformed or ill-performed. Sad, indeed, that an introspection so profound and acute as this poor minister's should be so miserably deceived. We've had, and may still have, worse things to tell of him, but none, we apprehend, so pitiably weak. No evidence, at once so slight and irrefragable, of a subtle disease that had long since begun to eat in the real substance of his character. No man, for any considerable period, can wear one face to himself and another to the multitude without finally getting bewildered as to which may be the true. The exactment of Mr. Dimmerdale's feelings as he returned from his interview with Hester lent him unaccustomed physical energy and hurried him downward at rapid pace. The pathway among the woods seemed wider, more uncouth with its rude natural obstacles, and less trodden by the foot of man than he remembered it on the outward journey. But he leapt across the plashy places, thrust himself through the clinging underbrush, climbed the ascent, plunged into the hollow, and overcame, in short, all the difficulties of the track with an unwearable activity that astonished him. He could not but recall how feebly, and with what frequent pauses for breath, he had toiled over the same ground only two days before. As he drew near the town, he took an impression of change from the series of familiar objects that presented themselves. It seemed not yesterday, not one nor two, but many days, or even years ago since he had quitted them. There indeed was the former trace of the street as he remembered it, and all the peculiarities of the houses, with the due multitude of gable peaks and a weathercock at every point where his memory suggested one. Not the less, however, came this importunely obtrusive sense of change. The same was true as regarded the acquaintances whom he met, and all the well-known shapes of human life about the little town. They looked neither older nor younger now. The beers of the aged were no whiter, nor could the creeping babe of yesterday walk on his feet today. It was impossible to describe, in reality, what they differed from the individuals on whom he had so recently bestowed a parting glance. And yet the minister's deepest sense seemed to inform him of their mutability. A similar impression struck him most remarkably as he passed under the wall from his own church. The edifice had so very strange and yet so familiar an aspect that Mr. Dimmerdale's mind vibrated between two ideas, either that he had seen it only in a dream hitherto, or that he was merely dreaming about it now. This phenomenon, in the various shapes which it assumed, indicated no external change, but so sudden and important a change in the spectator of the familiar scene that the intervening spaces of a single day had operated on his consciousness like the lapse of years.
the minister's own will and Hester's will and the fate that grew between them had wrought this transformation. It was the same town as heretofore, but the same minister returned not from the forest. He might have said to the friends who greeted him, I am not the man for whom you take me. I left him yonder in the forest, withdrawn into a secret dell by a mossy tree trunk near the melancholy brook. Go, seek your minister, and see if his emaciated figure, his thin cheek, his white, heavy, pain-wrinkled brow might not be flung down there like a cast-off garment. His friends, no doubt, would have insisted with him, Thou art thyself the man. But the error would have been their own, not his. Before Mr. Dimmesdale reached home, his inner man gave him other evidences of a revolution in the sphere of thought and feeling. In truth, nothing short of a total change of dynasty and moral code in the interior kingdom was adequate to account for the impulses that now communicated to the unfortunate and startled minister. At every step, he was incited to do some strange, wild, wicked thing or other, with a sense that it would be at once involuntary and intentional in spite of himself, yet growing out of a profounder self than that which opposed the impulse. For instance, he met one of his own deacons. The good old man addressed him with the paternal affection and patriarchal privilege which his venerable age, his upright and holy character, and his station in the church entitled him to use. And, conjoined with this, the deep, almost worshipping respect which the minister's professional and private claims alike demanded. Never was there a more beautiful example of how the majesty of age and wisdom may comport with the obeisance and respect enjoined upon it as from a lower social rank and inferior order of the endowment towards a higher. Now, during a conversation of some two or three moments between the Reverend Mr. Dimmesdale and his excellent and hoary-bearded deacon, it was only by the most careful self-control that the former could refrain from uttering certain blasphemous suggestions that rose into his mind respecting the communion supper. He absolutely trembled and turned pale as ashes, lest his tongue should wag itself in utterances of these horrible matters, and plead his own consent for so doing without his having fairly given it. And, even with this terror in his heart, he could hardly avoid laughing to imagine how the sanctified old patriarchal deacon would have been petrified by his minister's impity. Again, another incident of the same nature. Hurrying along the street, the Reverend Mr. Dimmesdale encountered the eldest female member of his church. A most pious and exemplary old dame, poor, widowed, lonely, and with a heart as full of reminiscences about her dead husband and children and her dead friends of long ago as a burial ground is full of storied gravestones. Yet all this, which would have else been such a heavy sorrow, was made almost a solemn joy to her devout old soul by religious consolations and truth of scripture wherewith she had fed herself continually for more than thirty years. And since Mr. Dimmesdale had taken her in charge, the good Grandam's chief earthly comfort, which, unless it had likewise been a heavenly comfort, could have been none at all, was to meet her pastor, whether casually or of set purpose, and be refreshed with a word of warm, fragrant, heaven-breathing gospel truth from his beloved lips into her dulled but rapturously attentive ear. But on this occasion, up to the moment of putting his lips to the old woman's ear, Mr. Dimmesdale, as the great enemy of souls would have it, could recall no text of scripture, nor aught else except a brief pithy, and, as it then appeared to him, unanswerable arguments against the immortality of the human soul. 
The instilment thereof into her mind would probably have caused this aged sister to drop down dead at once, as by the effect of an intensely poisonous infusion. What he really did whisper, the minister could never afterwards recollect. There was, perhaps, a fortunate disorder in his utterance, which failed to impact any distinct idea to the good widow's comprehension, or which Providence interpreted afterwards a method of its own. Assuredly, as the minister looked back, he beheld an expression of gratitude and ecstasy that seemed like the shrine of the celestial city on her face, so wrinkled and ashy pale. Again, a third instance. After passing from the old church member, he met the youngest sister of them all. It was a maiden newly won, and won by the Reverend Mr. Dimmesdale's own sermon on the Sabbath after his vigil. To barter the transitory pleasures of the world for the heavenly hope that was to assume brighter substance as life grew dark around her, and which would gild the utter gloom with final glory. She was fair and pure as lily that had bloomed in paradise. The minister knew well that he was himself enshrined within the stainless sanctity of her heart, which hung its snowy curtains about his image, imparting to religion the warmth of love, and to love a religious purity. Satan, that afternoon, had surely led the poor girl away from her mother's side, and thrown her into the pathway of this sorely tempted, nor shall we not rather say, this lost and desperate man. As she drew nigh, the archfiend whispered him to condense into a small compass, and drop into her tender bosom a germ of evil that would be sure to blossom darkly soon, and bear black fruit betimes. Such was his sense of power over this virgin soul, trusting him, as she did, that the minister felt potent to blight all fields of innocent with but one wicked look, and develop all its opposite with but a word. So, with a mightier struggle than he had yet sustained, he held his Geneva cloak before his face and hurried onward, making no sign of recognition and leaving the young sister to digest his rudeness as she might. She ransacked her conscience, which was full of harmless little matters, like her pocket or her workbag, and took herself to task, poor thing, for a thousand imaginary faults, and went about her household duties with swollen eyelids the next morning. Before the minister had time to celebrate his victory over this last temptation, he was conscious of another impulse, more ludicrous and almost as horrible. It was, we blush to tell it, it was to stop short in the road and teach some very wicked words to a knot of little Puritan children who were playing there and who had just begun to talk. Denying himself this freak, as unworthy of his cloth, he met a drunken seaman, one of the ship's crew from the Spanish main. And here, since he had so valiantly forborne all other wickedness, poor Mr. Dimmesdale longed, at least, to shake hands with the tarry blackguard, and recreate himself with a few improper jests, such as desolute sailors so abound with, and a volley of good, round, solid, satisfactory, and heaven-defying oaths. It was not so much a better principle, as partly his natural good taste, and still more his buck-round habit of clerical decorum that carried him safely through this latter crisis. What is it that haunts and tempts me thus? cried the minister to himself at length, pausing in the street and striking his hands against his forehead. Am I mad? Am I given over utterly to the fiend? Did I make contact with him in the forest and sign it in my blood? And does he now summon me to its fulfilment by suggesting the performance of every wicked which his most foul imagination can conceive? At the moment, when the Reverend Mr. Dimmesdale thus communed with himself and struck his forehead with his hand, old Mistress Hibbins, the reputed witch-lady, is said to have been passing by. 
she made a very grand appearance, having on a high headdress, a rich gown of velvet, and a ruff done up with the famous yellow starch of which Anne Turner, her especial friend, had taught her the secret before this last good lady had been hanged for Sir Thomas Overbury's murder. Whether the rich lady had read the minister's thoughts or no, she came to a full stop, looked shrewdly into his face, smiled craftily, and, though little given to converse with the clergyman, began a conversation. So, reverend, you've made a visit to the forest, observed the witch lady, nodding her high headdress at him. Next time, I pray you allow me only fair warning, and I shall be proud to bear you company. Without taking over much upon myself, my good word will go far towards gaining any strange gentleman a fair reception from yonder protonist you wot of. I profess, madam, answered the clergyman, with a grave obeisance such as the lady's rank demanded, and his own good breeding made imperative. I profess, on my conscience and character, that I am utterly bewildered as touching the purport of your words. I went not into the forest to seek a pretentious, Neither do I, at any future time, design a visit thither with a view of gaining the favour of such personage. My one sufficient object was to greet that pious friend of mine, the Apostle Eliot, and rejoice with him over the many precious souls he hath won from heathendom. We'll be right back. Do you ever wish you could sit in on a conversation with some of your favourite authors? and listen to them talk about their writing process, their path to publication, and of course their newest novels. Hi, I'm Marissa Meyer, best-selling author of The Lunar Chronicles, and I would love for you to check out the Happy Writer podcast, where every week I talk with other writers about books, craft, inspiration, and how to bring a little more joy into our lives. The Happy Writer is available wherever you get your podcasts or find us on Instagram at Happy Writer Podcast. <laughs> cackled the old witch lady, still nodding her high headdress at the minister. Well, well, we must needs talk thus in daytime. You carry it off like an old hand. But at midnight, and in the forest, we shall have other talk together. She passed on with her aged stateliness, but often turning back her head and smiling at him, like one willing to recognise a secret intimacy of connection. Have I then sold myself, thought the minister, to the fiend whom, if men say true, this yellow-starched and velted old hag has chosen for her prince and master? The wretched minister. He had made a bargain very like it. Tempted by a dream of happiness, he had yielded himself with a deliberate choice, as he had never done before, to what he knew was a deadly sin and the infectious poison of that sin had been thus rapidly diffused throughout his moral system. It had stupefied all blessed impulses, and awakened into vivid life the whole brotherhood of bad ones. Scorn, bitterness, unprovoked malignity, gracious desire of ill, ridicule, or whatever was good and holy, all awoke to tempt, even while they frightened him. And his encounter with old Mistress Hibbins, if it were a real incident, did but show his sympathy and fellowship with wicked morals and the world of perverted spirits. He had, by this time, reached his dwelling on the edge of the burial ground, and, hastening up the stairs, took refuge in his study.
The minister was glad to have reached his shelter without first betraying himself to the world by any of those strange and wicked eccentricities to which he had been continually impelled while passing through the streets. He entered the accustomed room and looked around him, on its books, its windows, its fireplace, and the tapestried comfort of the walls, with the same perception of strangeness that had haunted him throughout his walk from the forest to dwell into the town and thitherward. Here he had studied and written, here gone through fast and vigil and come forth alive, here striven to pray, here borne a hundred thousand agonies. There was the Bible, rich in its old Hebrew, with Moses and the prophets speaking to him, and God's voice through all. There, on the table, with the inky pen beside it, was an unfinished sermon, with a sentence broken in the midst, where his thoughts had ceased to gush out upon the page two days before. He knew that it was himself, the thin and white-cheeked minister, who had done and suffered these things, and written thus far into the election sermon. But he seemed to stand apart, and I his former self, with scornful, pitying, but half-envious curiosity. That self was gone. Another man had returned out of the forest, a wiser one, with a knowledge of hidden mysteries which the simplicity of the former one never could have reached. A bitter kind of knowledge, that. While occupied with these reflections, a knock came at the door of the study, and the minister said, Come in, but not wholly devoid of an idea that he might behold an evil spirit. And so he did. It was old Roger Chillingworth that entered. The minister stood, white and speechless, with one hand on the Hebrew scriptures, and the other spread upon his breast. Welcome home, reverend sir, said the physician, and have found you that godly man, the Apostle Eliot. But methinks, dear sir, you look pale, as if the travel through the wilderness had been too sore for you. Will not my aid be requisite to put you in heart and strength to preach your election sermon? Nay, I think not so. Nay, I think not so, rejoined the Reverend Mr. Dimmesdale. My journey, and the sight of the holy apostle yonder, and the free air which I have breathed, have done me good, after so long confinement in my study. I think I need no more of your drugs, my kind physician, good though they be, and administered by a friendly hand. All this time, Roger Chillingworth was looking at the minister with the grave and intent regard of a physician towards his patient. But in spite of his outward show, the latter was almost convinced of the old man's knowledge, or, at least, his confident suspicion with respect to his own interview with Hester Prynne. The physician knew then that in the minister's regard, he was no longer a trusted friend, but his bitterest enemy. And so much being known, it would appear natural that the part of it should be expressed. It is singular, however, how long a time often passes before words embody things, and with what security two persons, who choose to avoid certain subject, may approach its very verge and retire without disturbing it. Thus, the minister felt no apprehension that Roger Chillingworth would touch, in express words, upon the real position which they sustained towards one another. Yet, yet did the physician, in his dark way, creep frightfully near the secret. Were it not better, said he, that you use my poor skill tonight? Verily, dear sir, we must take pains to make you strong and vigorous for this occasion of the election discourse. 
The people look for great things from you, apprehending that another year may come about and find their pastor gone. Yea, to another world, replied the minister with pious resignation. Heaven grant it be a better one, for, in good sooth, I hardly think to tarry with my flock through the flitting seasons of another year. But touching your medicine, kind sir, in my present frame body, I need it not. I joy to hear it, answered the physician. It may be that my remedies, so long administered in vain, begin now to take due effect. Happy man were I, and well deserving of New England's gratitude, could I achieve this cure. I thank you from my heart, most watchful friend, said the Reverend Mr. Dimmesdale with a solemn smile. I thank you, and can but requite your good deeds with my prayers. A good man's prayers are golden recompense rejoined old Roger Chillingworth as he took his leave. Yeah, they are the current gold coin of the new Jerusalem, with the king's own mint marked on them. Left alone, the minister summoned a servant of the house and requested food, which, being set before him, he ate with ravenous appetite. Then, flinging the already written pages of the election sermon into the fire, he forthwith began another, which he wrote with such an impulsive flow of thought and emotion that he fancied himself inspired, and only wondered that heaven should see fit to transmit the grand and solemn music of its oracles through so foul an organ pipe as he. However, leaving that mystery to solve itself, or go unsolved forever, he drove his task onward, with earnest haste and ecstasy. Thus the night fled away, as if it were a winged seat, and he careering on it. Morning came and peeped, blushing, through the curtains. And at last, sunrise threw a golden beam into the study, and laid it right across the minister's bedazzled eyes. There he was, with his pen still between his fingers, and a vast, immeasurable tract of written pages behind him. Thank you so very much for listening. If you enjoyed, please like, comment, share, all that jazz. And if you really enjoyed, do subscribe, because there's more to come. And if you're listening on podcast, please leave a review. Reading your reviews really makes my day, and um, it helps get this in front of as many people as possible, which is fantastic. Once again, thank you for listening, and until next time, bye-bye.